This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 312, March 18, 1994. This afternoon, Otto Scott and I are uh, happy to have as our guest Howard Phillips. We're sorry that Mark Rushdoony and Douglas Murray could not be with us, but very happy to have Howard share with us his insights about the state of things in Washington, D.C. Howard, would you like to comment on what's happening right now with the administration and with Congress? Well, Rush, uh, I'm afraid to say that things don't look any better up close than they do from a distance. <laughs> and I would say that uh, uh, contrary to what Jubilation T. Cornpone said, the country is not in the very best of hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've looked at a number of <clears throat> issues, and both parties seem determined uh, to do us in. Uh, in the case of socialized medicine, the American people have rejected what uh, Bill and Hillary are arguing for, yet the Republicans seem determined to push uh, for some kind of health plan. In the case of NAFTA, uh, the overwhelming majority of Republicans at the grassroots level oppose this unconstitutional scheme uh, to move us closer to uh, unaccountable New World Order institutions, yet uh, the Republican Party in Congress voted overwhelmingly in support of NAFTA. There's a crime bill before Congress, which passed the Senate 95 to 4, which uh, abridges our right to keep and bear arms, which seeks to federalize control over local law enforcement, which provides subsidies for radical feminist organizations uh, in the name of uh, fighting wife abuse, spousal abuse, and some su- and such things. Uh, there's no real opposition in Congress to the problems. When you look at the abortion issue. Uh, We look at the Supreme Court, and we have Harry Blackman, named by Richard Nixon, John Paul Stevens, named by Gerald Ford, Sandra Day O'Connor, and uh, Anthony Kennedy, named by Ronald Reagan, uh, David Souter, named by George Bush. Right there, you've got a majority for Roe v. Wade. Uh, It was entirely predictable how they were going to vote, with the possible exception of Anthony Kennedy. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was a leader in Planned Parenthood in Arizona. She voted pro-abortion in the Arizona State Senate. David Souter is a hospital trustee in Concord, New Hampshire, voted to change the policy of his hospitals from zero abortion to convenience abortion. He already had the blood on his hands of many babies before he was named by George Bush. Even Scalia and uh, Thomas, who are by comparison far superior, are unwilling to declare that the unborn child is a human person entitled to legal protection. And Stevens has observed that if that were done, then abortion would be unconstitutional in every city and town, every state in the nation. And uh, both parties have supported the funding of the homosexual movement. Uh, on issue after issue, uh, there are arguments over uh, degree, but not over direction. So uh, that is very troubling. There is very little strength in Congress for the changes that need to be made. But there's good news, too. The good news is that when our people organize, they can win some victories. I'm proud that my son Doug has had the opportunity to work for Mike Farris at the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and Doug was part of the great victory uh, which uh, rejected George Miller's amendment, which would have made uh, homeschool teachers 
and other private and Christian school teachers potentially subject to uh, certification requirements at the state and local level. And that was a situation in which tens of thousands of homeschooling uh, parents and others from around the country joined in and uh, what had once appeared to be a foregone conclusion turned into a 424-to-1 rout of the enemy with only George Miller voting for his particular amendment in that area. And then there was another amendment that Congressman Army of uh, Texas put forward, which further eroded some of the tangential dangers in H.R. 6. Tragically, H.R. 6 itself has not been defeated, and uh, uh, we're still not able to get the leadership we need uh, from the top of the Republican Party to reject the basic concept of a federal role in education. One of the hottest things in Washington, and I think we should <coughs> devote at least some attention to it, is the difficulty in which the Clintons find themselves in what has come to be known as Whitewater. Uh, the allies of the Clintons, and their allies are many in the government and in the media and the legal community, uh, suggest that this is a trivial matter, that it makes, uh, th that it's nothing compared to Watergate, but I would argue that this is uh, the most serious criminal matter that has ever involved a president of the United States. Uh, it, it's a complicated issue if you simply look at this part or that part or the other part, but what it really is is an issue of an effort to obtain political power by using other people's money. That's what it really boils down to. And what we're looking at is a situation in which, over the years, the Clintons used the state treasury in Arkansas and the credit of the Arkansas government, and they used the credit of the federal treasury through the FDIC backing up uh, non-productive SNL loans to provide what may approximate uh, something in the neighborhood of $100 million for their political uh, allies, for their friends, and uh, the Arkansas taxpayer, the American taxpayer is being stuck with the bill. And what makes it uh, a subject for criminal action scrutiny now is that uh, Mrs. Clinton, on the evidence, seems to have been involved in a uh, uh, conscious conspiracy to destroy evidence, uh, to obstruct justice, and it also appears that uh, uh, the president may very well have been involved in this personally. Certainly some of his uh, top appointees are involved in it. The uh, Whitewater scandal has many dimensions to it, and that's one of the reasons why it's hard to explain in a paragraph. It has uh, the dimension of uh, Vince Foster, the unusual circumstances of his death, which as we... Uh, tape this broadcast have not been explained to my satisfaction or to the satisfaction of many other observers and journalists. We have a special counsel who is part of the establishment, a good friend of uh, the former White House counsel, Bernard Nussbaum, who is a major subject of investigation, a man whose uh, law firm benefited from fee recovery efforts by Jamie Gorlick. Uh, who has replaced Philip Hyman as the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, a man who, according to a column by Bill Sapphire, uh, agreed early on that 
vast areas of potential uh, criminal scrutiny were beyond such scrutiny because uh, they were conceded to be within the realm of lawyer-client privilege. We have a very unusual scandal relating to the fact that many members of the White House staff have not yet received security clearances. And many excuses have been given for this, but there is widespread suspicion that it may relate to drug-related activity or other unseemly activity on the part of some of them. One of the names of which we will hear more as this scandal unfolds is the name of Dan Lassiter. Uh, Mr. Lassiter uh, had a company in Arkansas which received uh, from the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, courtesy of Governor Clinton in 1986, more than $664 million in state bond sales contracts. And those contracts netted Dan Lassiter's firm $1.6 million in fees. What is interesting is that in that same year, Lassiter was convicted of cocaine distribution, and he wound up uh, serving uh, 30 months in prison. Lassiter was very close to the Clinton family. He was introduced to the Clinton boys by uh, Billy's mother, Virginia Kelly, who met Dan at the racetrack uh, in Little Rock. And uh, when Roger uh, was under duress because he owed some money to drug dealers, Lassiter coughed up $8,000 uh, to help Roger Clinton pay off his bill to those drug dealers. While Lassiter was in prison, a young lady by the name of Patsy Thomason was his trustee and ran his firm. The interesting thing is that Patsy Thomason is now the director of administration on the White House staff. She's one of those without a security clearance, and she's one of those who was involved with Bernard Nussbaum in rifling the files of uh, Vince Foster in the hours after his death was reported. Again, as part of this Dan Lasseter story, which is just one of many stories, in 1987, Hillary Rodham Clinton, after some lobbying, gained from the Federal Deposit and Insurance Corporation the right to represent the American taxpayer in a suit against Dan Lasseter, even though Lasseter had been flying her husband all over the place as part of his political activities and had been raising substantial sums for Lasseter. And isn't it interesting that Hillary uh, helped negotiate an out-of-court settlement in which a $3.3 million claim against Lassiter by the FDIC was settled for $200,000. So she was able to save her friend uh, more than $3 million. And then Clinton pardoned Lassiter in 1990 when he was governor. This is just one of about a dozen uh, significant things. This situation stinks. We are talking about serious criminal activities, uh, which on uh, the evidence, circumstantial as it may now be, uh, seems to directly involve the President and uh, Mrs. Clinton. It seems to me that we have to avoid having this swept under the rug by the special counsel named by Janet Reno with the permission of Webb Hubble, who himself uh, was involved in some very shady activities. We need to avoid having this swept under the rug uh, after some superficial brief hearings in the House and the Senate. We need to have impeachment hearings. I'm not prepared to say that 
Bill Clinton should be impeached. I am prepared to say that there is enough evidence to warrant a full inquiry to determine whether he is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. There is circumstantial evidence that he is. And uh, that is why the Conservative Caucus has organized something called the Coalition for a Congressional Impeachment Inquiry, and why we're working closely with Floyd Brown of Citizens United, why we're in touch with various journalists and working with other conservative groups <coughs> to try to make this a referendum question in the 1994 elections. We think that every candidate for Congress, regardless of party, should be forced to answer, yes or no, will you vote for a congressional impeachment inquiry? Now, I've done some reading about past impeachment efforts involving uh, Andrew Johnson. I was uh, involved in the Nixon administration at the time of the Watergate affair, although I was not involved in Watergate. And uh, it generally takes a couple of years for these things to run their course and to reach a climax. I think it's possible, because of the stench of scandal and the political effect it will have on democratic political fortunes, that this could come to a head during 1994. But it's also possible that it may drag on beyond 94, and that uh, the Democrats will wait to see how voters react in the 94 elections before reaching a decisive conclusion. How do you think the voters will react? Well, in the early days of Watergate, it was all too complicated then, and it seemed trivial, and I think that's the case here. But these proceedings develop a life of their own. And even though the press is a kept press, even though it forgives all of Bill Clinton's sins because they're the sins which very often they commit themselves, and because uh, uh, Bill Clinton is perceived as an instrument of their ideological objectives, nonetheless... Uh, the simple fact of competition, the simple fact of leads to be pursued, the simple fact that there is integrity uh, on the part of many people in the media, not as many as there should be, leads me to believe that uh, this is going to go on and on until it, is, until it culminates in the departure from office of the Clintons. Uh, if the American people understand what the Clintons have done, if they understand how they have cheated on their taxes and failed to pay many thousands of dollars which they owed, if they see how on the surface it appears they were guilty of willful tax fraud, at the same time they're raising the taxes on other people, if the stench of hypocrisy and ridicule infects the Clinton administration, I think they're going to have to go down. The political cartoonists have not uh, agreed with the... <coughs> Uh, editorials in the various papers. The editorials have been supportive of Clinton. The political cartoonists have uh, turned him into a joke. That's true, although even the New York Times and the Washington Post have begun to uh, carry some cautionary pieces with respect to the Clinton saying, okay folks, let's get your act together. Al Hunt in the Wall Street Journal uh, and Quinlan in the New York Times Howell Reigns, the editorial page editor in the Times, even the New Republic, uh, are all giving the Clintons advice. They're saying, well, Hillary, you've got to have a Geraldine Ferraro, let it all hang out press conference, and uh, Bill, you've got to do this or that, and, and, uh, and these things seem to be troubling on their surface. Let's get it out. Let's get rid of it. But it, there may well be a good reason for what's going on. First of all, Hillary 
was part of the Nixon impeachment inquiry. Yes. Uh, she worked for Bernard Nussbaum, who was a senior staff director, and she learned that the biggest mistake Nixon made was that he didn't burn his tapes. And she's not going to make that mistake. By all accounts, uh, she's done everything she can to destroy relevant documents. So that is a, uh, a major irony involving this. But speaking of cartoons, uh, there was one that was carried by the uh, Arkansas Democrat Gazette recently uh, in which there were two IRS agents portrayed together. One of them was sitting down looking into a computer screen, and he said to the other, so you want to investigate the president for filing a, a false tax return? And the other one, the other IRS agent said, right, uh, Cl uh, Bill Clinton listed himself as head of household. <laughs> and, <laughs> and clearly that wasn't true in the view of the IRS agent. So the cartoonists are doing their job. I don't think the press has done a very good job in explaining these matters. And the number of journalists who have entered government service is becoming a growing disgrace. It's a joke. It's a revolving door. Look, and uh, without any derogation intended necessarily, just look at some of the famous people. You look at Cokie Roberts. Uh, a young lady uh, who on a personal level I, I uh, uh, have regard for. I've known her for a number of years, and she comes from a very nice family, but it's a family of liberal Democrats. Uh, her dad was the Democratic uh, Speaker of the House of, or uh, Majority Leader in the House of Representatives. Her mother, Lindy, was a Democratic Congressman from uh, Louisiana. Her sister, Barbara, was uh, a Democratic Mayor of uh, Princeton, New Jersey. She's married to Steve Roberts a protege of Barney Frank, and uh, his brother Mark was an economics advisor to George McGovern in 72. Uh, to suggest that she is impartial is ridiculous. Uh, you look at uh, uh, the fellow who runs uh, Meet the Press, Tim Russert, a very capable moderator uh, who used to work for Pat Moynihan. He used to work for Mario Cuomo. Uh, you, uh, uh, I'm sure that we could cite many, many other examples. Burke at ABC was uh, uh, Ted Kennedy's administrative assistant. A across the spectrum, uh, these people go in and out of journalism. And uh, I yearn for the days at the beginning of the American public when there was great candor. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had his friend uh, Samuel Smith, who ran the National Intelligencer, and there was no doubt that that was a partisan Jeffersonian newspaper. Abe Lincoln owned a number of uh, German-language newspapers in Illinois and other newspapers. He was a media czar, and there was no uh, mistake about the fact that these were partisan instruments to advance his career. Today, there is the hypocritical pretense uh, that these journalistic outlets are neutral, when in fact uh, they are uh, agents of radical liberalism. I'm beginning to think that it might not be a bad idea to put some biographical information about some of these writers we don't know, for instance, when there's a religious editor, where he comes from. And this is a very pertinent point. You bet. And the same is true of some of the others. I ask, I, I like the question you always ask, tell me about your father. Yes. And we should do that with the journalists. Exactly. Where, do, where does he come from? When Hillary Clinton first came to public attention, she was born in Swarthmore. Mm-hmm. And we don't, still don't know anything about the Rodham family. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew Hillary slightly when she was at Wellesley. I was chairman of the Republican Party in Boston at that time. So it was Wellesley, not Swarthmore. Right. She was in the Young Republicans. <clears throat> and uh, somewhere along the way, uh, 
she stopped being a liberal Republican and became a very liberal Democrat. Uh, but it is interesting to uh, to search the histories and to discover the associations. Of course, she was heavily involved with the Federal Legal Services Program. She was the chairman of the Legal Services Corporation. Uh, when I was director of OEO, the Office of Legal Services was under my jurisdiction. I tried to close it down. I tried to prevent Nixon from creating the Legal Services Corporation. One of the people I fired at OEO was a fellow named Mickey Cantor, who's now Bill Clinton's trade representative. I knew a lot of those folks back in those days. Many of the people in the uh, Clinton administration are bad old memories. But interestingly, they served under Richard Nixon because, like most Republicans, he never had the wit or the will to clean out uh, the, uh, the refuse and the legacy of the Democrats. They were more afraid of a bad day in the Washington Post than they were afraid of four bad years of uh, perpetuating that against which they had pretended to campaign. Well, that brings up the moral paralysis of the Republican Party. Indeed it does. They are the greatest collection of cowards in the country. Well, they, they operate on what Gerald Ford said. I, I remember vividly. I was in California on the day that uh, Gerald Ford made his first speech to Congress. Nixon resigned on August 9th, 1974. On August 12th, uh, uh, Jerry Ford uh, addressed Congress. I was up in the mountains in this area. And uh, I was with a group of people who were of similar perspective. And we had the radio turned on. There was no television. And I remember Jerry Ford said to Congress, I offer you a banner of consensus, compromise, conciliation, and cooperation. Basically what he was saying is, don't hit me. I surrender. I'm on my knees, and uh, I won't do anything to hurt you. That is the Republican approach to government. Uh, the, they assume that the left will surrender power by consensus, when in fact, when there's something worth fighting about, you can only gain it by confrontation. The only way we're going to take this country back is by confrontation between the forces of good and the forces of evil, to put it that bluntly. And uh, the Republicans don't have a stomach for it. Well, Newt Gingrich, <clears throat> who has said so many things, some of which is very quotable, <clears throat> said the difference between businessmen and politicians is that in business, all transactions have to be compromised. Both sides have to win something in order for a transaction to occur. Therefore, business is based upon compromise and negotiation. Politics, on the other hand, he said, consists of one person winning and another person losing. So politics is confrontation. That is the reason, he said, why we cannot seem to talk businessmen into sensible political positions. Well, unfortunately, uh, Newt Gingrich seems to have forgotten his instruction yes. because he basically <coughs> is uh, leading the Republican Party into a posture of compromise on a number of issues. He, he delivered a lot of votes for NAFTA. Uh, he's uh, trying to work out a compromise on socialized medicine. Uh, he's uh, seeking to moderate the Republican position on abortion, etc., etc., ad nauseum. And uh, the Republican Party has lost any moral claim on the support of Christians and conservatives because if you ask a man for his dollar, if you ask him for his time, if you ask him for his vote, you have a moral obligation not to have thrown the fight before the, the bell rings. These folks have thrown the fight. We have a moral duty to pursue victory and to conscientiously seek it. The odds against us may be extraordinary, 
but uh, I would rather face long odds and only go a little way than to uh, uh, fly a flag under false pretenses, which is what the Republicans are doing. They are the problem we face. They are a greater danger to our liberties than the Democrats are, and that's why the Republican Party must be removed from the, from the middle of the road if we're ever to take this country back. I agree. I didn't quote Grin, uh, <clears throat> make that quote because I admired the man who made it. After all, we've heard the president <laughs> praising the military. Mm -hmm. And this is a president who came into politics opposing the United States in Vietnam, who traveled to Russia at a time when only fellow travelers could get there. And who lived in Czechoslovakia in the company of known Communist, Communist Party operatives. So this is a man whose background is highly suspect, and I'm sorry to say he comes from a family that has a number of criminal violations in its members. So if we go back to my old question of what did his father do, in this case there's some question about what his father did. Well, he fathered a number of children who keep popping up in the strangest places. Yes, I know. Half Congress <laughs> is likely to be his half-brother. But, uh, but this is a rather serious issue. We're being told now, for the first time in my recollection, that character doesn't count. Well, if character doesn't count, what does? No, character is at the very heart of the matter. And it's uh, been a lack of character. Uh, among our people and among our leaders that has led to so many of the problems we have. The, uh, the stories involving Clinton and Whitewater are so extensive, they're extraordinary. If you look at Webb Hubble, uh, who uh, recently uh, decided to resign, which was a very helpful move to the Clintons, here's a guy who negotiated a deal for Seth Ward, his father-in-law, who had borrowed uh, $600,000 from the Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan without in any way disclosing to the FDIC that he had a personal family stake in this thing. He and his colleagues at Rose Law Firm secured the right to negotiate a settlement with his father-in-law, and they wrote off all uh, except something under $20,000, perhaps $13,000 had to be repaid. So it was in this manner that they used the SNLs uh, as a piggy bank to reward their friends and underwrite their political activities. An extraordinary scandal, grand larceny on a major scale. Uh, we have the other case of uh, Dan Hale, who accuses Bill Clinton of having pressured him to cough up 300 grand uh, from a small business investment corporation source, uh, which redounded to the advantage of Susan McDougall the wife of the founder of uh, Whitewater, uh, despite the fact that the source of the money uh, indicated that it was to be used only to help the disadvantaged and others uh, in categories in no way analogous to those of Susan McDougall. We're talking about major financial scandals without even getting into the unusual uh, personal uh, scandals in which... Uh, both the president and his spouse may have been involved. Well, it's very interesting because the press is now saying, well, after all, it happened when he was governor of Arkansas, that Arkansas operates that way, and that this is just uh, not relevant to his present situation as president. 
Now, when Spiro Agnew was brought up before the court and had to plead guilty to accepting bribes, he didn't accept bribes as vice president. He accepted bribes as governor of Maryland. And in fact, uh, as I recall, what they did was get him on the failure to pay taxes uh, on uh, cash, which he argued he had received as campaign contributions, and which the government argued uh, were, not. Were, were not campaign contributions. Well, Paul Johnson, the English historian, I haven't seen this by any American author, or writer, or journalist, said that when Lyndon Johnson was, was vice president, he did collect bribes. There's significant evidence to suggest that that was the case. And, of course, many people, uh, including our good friend uh, in Texas who wrote that marvelous book, Everett Haley, who wrote the book A Texan Looks at Lyndon, uh, considerable evidence that the Johnson family enriched itself mightily. Spiro Agnew uh, was very harshly treated uh, by the media. He was obviously targeted because they knew that to get Nixon, they had to get Agnew first. The last thing they wanted was to have Ted Agnew succeed to the presidency. And uh, as a result, they made a major effort to uh, uh, put him in a position where he concluded that he had to plead no low contender uh, to some charges that were brought against him. He unfortunately had attorneys who, in my view, were not on his side, who were very liberal, and who pushed him into what I believe was a, a very unwise decision. My own view is that Agnew should have fought uh, the charges because I think that uh, they that it was that it was a matter of some doubt as to whether it was a question of bribes or campaign contributions. And certainly, uh, if you contrast it with some of the greater crimes that occurred uh, among more respectable people in the uh, Nixon administration and other administrations. It was a very petty thing indeed. I got to know Agnew pretty well uh, during the 1960s and early 70s. I first met Agnew when uh, I served uh, as an assistant to Ray Bliss when he was chairman of the Republican National Committee. Bliss ran something called the Republican Coordinating Committee, and three times a year he would bring together leaders of the Republican governors, living presidential candidates, etc. And I got to got to know F. Dirksen and Tom Dewey and a lot of other people simply by being the doorkeeper and a fly on the wall and, and uh, being around to chat with them in the coat rooms. Uh, when I met Agnew, I didn't like him very much. He was a very, uh, seemed to me to be very arrogant, uh, very uh, contemptuous of uh, people who uh, were of a lesser stature than he, and, and uh, he was at that point a member of the Rockefeller wing of the party. In 1969, when Nixon took office, I set my sights on being the executive director of the President's Council on Youth Opportunity, and that was an entity that had been set up uh, by Lyndon Johnson as uh, something uh, for Hubert Humphrey to use to ingratiate himself with the mayors of the, of the largest cities. I uh, sought it out because it, uh, among other things, would give me an education in uh, how the government worked. It was an inter-cabinet agency, and it did work out well. I got to sit in on some cabinet meetings and to uh, meet people in every department and agency when I finally got there. But when I was first interviewed by Agnew, uh, uh, he rejected me for the job because I, I didn't do very well at the interview, and I didn't think uh, we were ever going to hit it off. People on his staff liked me, and they convinced me to take a lesser position. I was eventually appointed to the top spot. Uh, when I became director of OEO, 
1973, which was four or five years later, um, I still had a distant relationship with Agnew. Uh, he had, uh, I think, gradually gained respect for me during that relationship uh, with the Youth Council, but we were we were not what you would call close. Then, when I was named uh, director of OEO, on a particular occasion, I was called upon to testify uh, before a committee of Congress, and I and the entire Black Caucus came out to grill me, and uh, I endured five hours of testimony. And the Washington Post. Uh, declared it to have been a very good day for me, and I think it was. I think I knocked them all out of the park. And uh, uh, Agnew called me in my car as I was uh, traveling around Capitol Hill the next day, and he he just said uh, how much he appreciated what I had done and that he wanted to help me and work with me. And from that point forward, Agnew and I became pretty close friends, and uh, Whenever I had a battle with the liberals in the Nixon White House, Agnew, with no prospect of gain, would take on uh, John Ehrlichman. He would take on Ken Cole, the head of the Domestic Council. He would take on Leonard Garment, Richard Nixon's left-wing uh, special counsel. And uh, he did a great job of shoring up my position at a time when I was virtually alone, with the exception of Agnew, trying to close down the Great Society. So I admired him as a man who knew what was right, who was willing to fight for what was right, uh, and uh, who had a, uh, he was a man of moral courage and uh, of extraordinary knowledge, eloquence, and uh, he, he had his weaknesses as we, as we all do. And I will never recall, I will never forget uh, recalling the poignance of uh, his last day in office. He did the honor of uh, asking me to join him uh, in a long uh, afternoon at Trader Vic's restaurant in Washington where he tried to drown his sorrows uh, in uh, some of the beverages they were providing at that establishment. And it was something that I will never forget to see a man who was on, on the verge of potentially becoming President of the United States. There was no doubt that other things being equal, he would have succeeded Nixon as the Republican nominee in 1976. If Nixon had fallen and he were the vice president, he would have succeeded to the presidency. I believe that because of his character, his moral courage, his core principles, he would have been a very great president. And uh, he knew how bad things were. He knew uh, what needed to be done. And I, and I saw uh, the extraordinary pain he was suffering to realize how through his own weakness and imperfections so much had been lost. And that uh, greatly impressed upon me the realization that those of us who seek to lead our cause uh, have to uh, uh, strive mightily to resist those temptations, uh, those uh, ethical shortcomings, those improprieties, which would uh, disqualify us at key moments from uh, carrying the torch to victory. But uh, when you look at uh, even the most extreme charges brought against Agnew and contrast them with uh, what is on the table already with respect to Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, other key members of his administration, there's no comparison. What is obvious is the double standard. And you would have to add that uh, what other men who are holding office and are highly regarded are doing and nothing is done to them. I recall in the 1950s a man in politics telling me that 
increasingly even back then. If uh, there was nothing you did that could be held over you, your chances of getting elected right. were not good. That's right. Because a good candidate was one that could be controlled. That's right. So <clears throat> he left politics. He couldn't stomach that kind of uh, environment. Well, we, we've got to be willing to have everything spread on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, un unless you're willing to die, not just physically, but in terms of contemporary reputation, you cannot prevail. Mm -hmm. Because the enemy will see it as weakness. If they know that they can disarm you and cripple you, because you fear a bad day in the newspapers, because you fear uh, the uh, the criticism, because you fear losing your government contracts, your income, whatever, you're gone. You've got to be willing, when you go to battle politically, as when you go to war, to lose everything. And if you're not ready to die, you can never win. Well, just imagine, when Nixon was under fire, there was a, an abortive attempt to bring up Mr. Lyndon Johnson, and he was immediately shouted down. Lyndon Johnson was an honorable man. Hmm. Now, the honorable man had $30 million that he made out of monopolistic television stations in Texas during his time in governmental office, and he said his wife was a wonderful businesswoman. Mm -hmm. And this was never challenged never investigated, never checked out whether there was any special pressure brought there to get a license or anything else or to keep anyone else from getting it. I remember J.B. Saunders refused to acknowledge that he knew Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. He knew him, but he refused to acknowledge it. He was not proud of the acquaintance. Well... Two of the three volumes of Carroll's Life of Johnson have been published mm -hmm. already. A counter volume has come out that does nothing but go after Carroll rather than uh, the facts. Carroll has done a brilliant job. Yes. What a magnificent He's having biography. a problem getting a publisher for the third and final volume. Oh. Uh, I recall reading aloud portions uh, of the second one. I think it was called Means of Ascent. First one was Ascent to Power, second one was Means of Ascent. What I found hilarious was the uh, description of Lyndon Johnson's kidney stone. I don't know if you remember that. From yes. The book. Oh, yeah. Johnson was so driven by ambition that he tried to suppress the reality of this tremendously painful uh, kidney stone. He, he had to go to the hospital to have it removed in some way, but if he got off the campaign trail, he would lose his chance to be a U.S. senator. So he would writhe in agony on the back seat of the car. He would change his shirts nine times a day. He would go on the stage and pretend to be vibrant, healthy, smiling, and happy, and then he would instantly collapse afterwards. And it is really, uh, even though it's authentic history, it's a parody of a man consumed by ambition. And, uh, of course, there are other things in there, too, that show the degree to which uh, uh, this man was, like Clinton, a man of large appetites, uh, sexually of large appetites in terms of power, large appetites in terms of money. Well, of course, what Clinton did in the war, and I remember World War II, 
And there were very few men my age who could resist serving, who had any spirit at all. It just was one of those things where you felt impelled to get involved. And for a man of comparable age to stay out of Vietnam was especially unworthy. James Fallows, I believe it was, who wrote an apologia in Harper's Magazine later, he, he went down to the draft office with the contrived excuse, and he gave it, and he got away with it, and then he left, and as he left, he saw what they called the grunts lined up, the boys who didn't go to college, because the college boys were given an exemption. And he felt shame as he drove by them. He consigned them to a death which had been his destiny. And he wrote this apology, and he became widely honored for having acknowledged what he had done. And as a matter of fact, he stands out from the rest, because Mr. Clinton has never apologized. And of course, what Clinton did was even more dishonorable. He... Uh, he raised draft dodging to a high art. I don't yes, think anyone did. did it in a more elaborate, arcane way than he did. <laughs> he broke every promise. Yeah. This is a man utterly without shame, utterly without principle, uh, who uh, is able to lie with a clear conscience because he's divested himself of conscience. Well, it's interesting to notice that he smiles and he's, his face is unlined. He shows no signs of strain while the flames are rising all around him. He has these staged press conferences where every question has been written by the White House staff before it's announced. And then he has these little demonstration meetings here and there where people selected, pre-selected, comprise the audience and get up and read off their little card. And he has an actor's gift of making his answer sound spontaneous. What a press we have. Pravda didn't do as well. It, it, it's extraordinary. Um, a, a kept press, although we have to say that there are exceptions. In the case of Whitewater, we have to commend uh, the uh, Washington Times for an extraordinary job of investigative reporting. We have to commend uh, Chris Ruddy of the New York Post, who did a brilliant job of uh, raising what uh, everyone had silently suspected, and that is that there was much more uh, to uh, Vince Foster's death than was first revealed. And we have to uh, also pay tribute to the boys at the Wall Street Journal uh, who have relentlessly called attention to uh, some of the problems. And there have been a, a columnists here and there who have also done a good job at key points. Bill Sapphire has made some good points. Others have as well. But uh, there's a lot to this story which has not yet been effectively communicated. One of the interesting things is that the Webb Hubble, Vince Foster, and Hillary Clinton, uh, who were three of the four musketeers, the fourth being a fellow named William Kennedy, who's the uh, now one of the deputy counsels of the White House, had formed an investment group among themselves called Midlife Investors. Hmm. And uh, they arranged it in such a way that uh, Hillary did not make Chelsea Clinton her beneficiary. She did not make Bill Clinton her beneficiary. In her will? 
in the uh, investment agreement with Midlife Investors. I see. You know, as you would have a beneficiary right. insurance policy, right. you would have this right. agreement. In this agreement, uh, uh, Vince Foster was beneficiary, and Vince Foster did the same thing. Hillary, Hillary Clinton was beneficiary. Now, uh, you don't have to trust me for this. This was on uh, the ABC News the other night. Now, it, it would seem to me that would be a headline. A little bit on the front, incestuous. On the front page, say? well, yeah. adulterous perhaps, yeah. not incestuous. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this is the kind of thing that the press has not uh, uh, brought up. Now, just imagine what would have happened uh, if Pat Nixon had been in an investment plan uh, with Richard Kleindienst or John Mitchell or one of those folks and had ruled out Tricia and Julie and Dick and had left it to the to the Mitchell family. Something would have been made of that. Well, something was made... <laughs> something was tried to be made out of some woman that had a very passing uh, impersonal relationship with George Bush. Jennifer Fitzgerald. Well, it's getting so bad that... Not much you can do but laugh. It's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, of course, there's a lot more. We could speak all afternoon about the Arkansas scandals because there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them even before you get into the uh, uh, problems of uh, uh, Clinton's aberrant uh, personal behavior uh, with women. The, there's one scandal which uh, we'll just share with your listeners and let me just put a caveat here that this is something I uh, have received secondhand from a journalist who formerly worked in Arkansas and uh, this has not yet been in print and it is, it's not something that I can corroborate but uh, in Arkansas there was a fellow named uh, Say McIntosh who had been uh, an activist in the Democratic Party, a black man, who at one point had been named Man of the Year by the Democratic Party in Arkansas. Uh, a number of years ago, while Clinton was governor, Mr. McIntosh's son was convicted of drug charges and was given a very long prison sentence, uh, decades. And McIntosh was outraged by this, concluded that uh, this was... Uh, racial discrimination at its most blatant. He said that if his son were white, he would not have received this kind of sentence. And in fairness to McIntosh, if you look at the sentence that was given to Dan Lasseter, there's some support for what McIntosh is saying. McIntosh, at some point in the 80s, began going after Clinton, accusing him of having uh, fostered a uh, child by a black prostitute. The child's name was Danny. And uh, McIntosh... Uh, actively advanced this story. It was it was picked up by one of the national tabloids. It was carried in there. Just before Clinton was to announce for the presidency, formally announce, McIntosh made clear to the Clintons that, un that he was going to bring a legal suit which would require Clinton to take a blood test and to be deposed under oath with respect to the story of this particular child. As I am given the information... And again, I cannot independently corroborate this. Uh, McIntosh was visited by an attorney who was a friend of Mr. Clinton. And McIntosh, for whatever reason, became silent. Uh, from that day forward, he has not said another word about Bill Clinton and uh, Danny. 
who supposedly is the son of a prostitute by the name of, I think, Bobby Williams. Lo and behold, after Clinton was elected president, there was a given day when Clinton resigned the governorship, Jim Guy Tucker became the governor, and then Jim Guy Tucker left town. And the president pro tem of the state senate, who happened to be a, a black man, a Democrat, uh, took office for a day, and in that one day, he pardoned a number of people. Uh, and one of the people that he pardoned was the son of Say McIntosh. Now, there are some people who are alleging that there was a quid pro quo there. I don't know whether there was or not, but I know this is being investigated by some of the more honest people in the journalistic community. If that uh, is ever developed into a question of fact rather than one of speculation, it could have interesting repercussions in and of itself. Well, I'm afraid you're right. <laughs> we could spend the afternoon going from one of these episodes to another. Well, there's also the fact that apparently during those years there was an airport in Arkansas which was the landing site for drug-bearing planes. There's, there has been talk about a scandal involving Mena, Arkansas. Again, I don't have all the facts because um, uh, it's a story still being developed. And one of the things that makes it interesting is that a company called Parkometer, which received significant funding from Bill Clinton through the Arkansas Development Finance Administration, or Authority, was headed by the father-in-law of uh, Webb Hubble. And uh, apparently Parkometer had a key role to play in matters which occurred at uh, Mena, Arkansas. And there are people like Larry Nichols uh, of Arkansas, who has had a long-running dispute with Clinton from the days when he was governor, Jim Johnson, the former justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court, and others have suggested that when the Mena, Arkansas story is fully told, that that could be uh, as serious as anything else that has been discussed with respect to Mr. Clinton. Am I the only one who recalls that when Clinton was running for the presidency that he bragged about the wonderful things that he had done in the state of Arkansas? Well, he did a lot of things in the state of Arkansas. Well, Wonderful is uh, in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Well, he claimed that he reduced <laughs> taxes and that he had increased business. They had lifted, uh, lifted employment. Arkansas was one of the uh, pearls of the Union. And parole, as I recall it, was the only one to pour water on those claims. For some reason or another, Mr. Bush and the Republicans played a strangely well, flaccid Otto, you make a campaign. very good point. And I'm not going to go beyond a hint here, because I don't want to tread in waters that are premature to discuss. But there are many people who blame Ross Perot for the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. But I think there's some uh, credence that can be given to the argument that uh, George Bush pulled his punches with respect to Bill Clinton because he and Bill Clinton, he was aware that there were some punches that Bill Clinton might throw at him that he didn't want to have thrown. And some of those may relate to certain of the matters that we've touched upon this afternoon. And I think before this is over, we're going to get a new perspective 
on the reason why George Bush ran so weak a campaign in 1992. Well, that would be very interesting. One of the things that I find very troubling is the loss of moral indignation in this country. I think we're so used to seeing, and it's one good reason for staying away from television, the most crooked kind of portrayals of politicians, of businessmen, of people on all levels on television, that we take it as a fact of life that in every area of life around us, corruption is the norm. And I think that prevalence is one reason why there isn't a tremendous outrage at what is happening in Washington. But it has sown disillusion and cynicism across yes. the country. You can recall, Otto, from the 30s, how incidents that we today would consider minor and which would get maybe... Uh, a few sentences on a back page would be on the front pages from coast to coast because of the moral shock. Well, it's also true that heirs were cleared. Uh, when Hugo Black was made uh, an associate justice of the Supreme Court, it was disclosed that he had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that was headlines. Mm -hmm. Justice Black went on the air. And he made a very short speech, perhaps 15 minutes or so. He said, it is true. I was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I joined when I was a young, ambitious lawyer in order to get political backing. And I left as soon as the backing was no longer necessary. And it ended the whole discussion because things were, came up and were answered, and that was that. Well, now nothing comes to an end, nothing comes to a conclusion, nothing is resolved. Lying has been raised to a high art. Of course, another example of that was Grover Cleveland. Uh, Grover Cleveland was one of several men uh, who uh, had a more than friendly relationship with a particular woman in Buffalo, New York. It was not clear who had impregnated the woman, but the woman did have a child, and uh, although it was not certain that Cleveland was the father, he assumed responsibility for it. And even though uh, the campaign refrain that year was, Mama, where's my pa? He's going to the White House, ha, ha, ha. Nonetheless, there was a measure of respect for the manliness uh, of uh, Cleveland in acknowledging his sin and expressing remorse for it. And that was the end of it. Yes. He came out ahead because he confronted the fact, he was thoroughly honest about it, more than necessary because the likelihood is that he was not the father. But uh, it was a Christian country and they respected him for the way he confessed his sin. Well... We don't have this, let us say, realism, no. sense of realism, and we don't get the straight answers. Mm -hmm. I think it's the lack of straight answers that bothers people more than anything else. 
these long convoluted accusations of lack of compassion instead of a response. Mm -hmm. Well, there's another recent example of it uh, with Chuck Robb in Virginia. Mm. I don't know if it's been carried here, but yes. the uh, Washington Post carried a more detailed account than I've seen elsewhere. The Washington Post got hold of some memos written by members of Robb's staff in which they uh, spelled out specific uh, reports of uh, Rob's presence at parties in which uh, there was drug use and Rob's suspected involvement in a number of adulterous relationships. And uh, Rob said, uh, and I, I apologize to your listeners for the candid answers, but I've heard some candor on your tapes in the comments. I've heard candid comments in the past. Uh, R Rob said, well... Uh, I, I chose my language very carefully. When I said that my wife was the only woman I had ever loved, I was referring only to coital relationships. I did not exclude other forms of uh, relationships with young women. And, uh, and it went on on the front page of the Washington Post to suggest what the nature of those might have been. And uh, again, here's a man who behaved disgracefully, and had he been candid in apologizing, as Alexander Hamilton did when he was caught in an adulterous relationship, uh, in a way that destroyed any prospect he ever had of becoming president, instead of becoming, uh, instead of being forthcoming, he has dragged his family through uh, a long period of rumor and innuendo. He's diminished his stature as a man, and he's placed in even greater jeopardy his prospects for re-election. Well, our time is up. Howard, thank you very much for being with us and for sharing these things with us. Well, this is an X-rated tape. I hope uh, I haven't <laughs> put you in jeopardy.